This is an incredible week 17 in this series. What it looks like. If you are a church person, you've been in church a long time. The idea is to maybe take a fresh look, a different spin on some of these and get to see them in a new way. A way that, um, you know, the idea being that, that God's scripture is limitless, limitlessly truthful. Um, and the idea to maybe change it, change the way we look at it to see a new way of what God has to say for, uh, to say to us. Uh, today, in, in, in a, it's, it's an interesting sermon because, or it's an interesting uh, passage because it's going to kind of sum up something that's been going on throughout uh, Genesis, something that's actually going to go on throughout the Old Testament, and then is going to continue into the New Testament and actually continues into our lives today in the church. Uh, we see in this text a pattern um, that, that God establishes for his way, God's way of dealing uh, with catastrophe, dealing with crisis. Um, and that's the question I'd like to have animate us today. How does God deal with crises, crisis? And when I talk about crises, crisis, I'm not talking about you're having an identity crisis. Okay, that's, that's a crisis, but that's like a me, myself, and I crisis. That's not a, wow, the world's going to end crisis. That's not, uh, death is right around the corner. That's not the culture is hostile and about to crush us. That's a, that's a, that's a crisis and I don't want to downplay that. But what we're going to look at today is we're going to see how God deals with the world historical, world changing crises, catastrophes that come sometimes from God, sometimes uh, not from God. But, but when things are really, really bad and are starting to fall apart, this may be, uh, an important time to be talking about this. Uh, we don't know, uh, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, I'm not a prophet, uh, but uh, it, it is troubling to me from time to time when I think about the course of my life. Um, I'm, I'm 37, and I think about from the time that I was basically conscious, somewhere in the mid-80s, um, to, to the present day, and I think, of, and I'm from Mission Viejo, Orange County, I grew up here. Uh, I, I did leave for a while, did some things, and I came back. But I've spent most of my life right here. In fact, most of it in this church. Uh, and I, I, I start to cast back and I look at um, the, the world I live in now. The United States now. Orange County now. California now. Uh, versus the United States, California, Orange County, Mission Viejo that I knew as a child. And, I, and I'm here to report to you uh, that in general, there's a lot more money around me. But there's also a lot more evil. Um, I, I, I hate to tell you, I mean, maybe you've noticed, but we live in a, in a culture that it seems to me is getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And we're here in Southern California on the vanguard of that. If you live in Southern California or, say, New York, um, places that are urban, San Francisco, Chicago, you tend to be more on the, on the cusp of what's happening culturally. Um, and then the rest of the country sort of follows be, behind. And I, I worry from time to time that we may be entering into a spiritual crisis, a spiritual desert in our area, in our community, in our country. And it might be, it might be, it might not, but it might be the case that uh, we are headed into some dark times. It might be a kind of scorched earth crisis for the church. It might not. You know, God is powerful and he does amazing things. It's not the first, it wouldn't be the first time we've had a, you know, a revival in this country if revival took root and, and people became passionate again for truth, redemption, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that can happen. The spirit can do what the spirit does. But if... If we are on that cusp, what's our calling? What does God do in the midst of crises like that? 
we're going to read this text, you're going to think it's about a big family reunion. But it's really about how God deals with catastrophe. Let's uh, take a look at the text. This is Genesis 45, verses 1 to 8. Joseph could no longer control himself in front of all his attendants, so he declared everyone out. So no one stayed with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians and Pharaoh's household heard him. Joseph said to his brothers, it's me, Joseph. Is my father Jacob really still alive? His brothers couldn't respond because they were terrified before him. Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. They did. They moved closer. He said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. Now don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God sent me before you to preserve life. We've already had two years of famine in the lands. There are five years left without planting or harvesting. God sent me before you to set up a remnant in the land and preserve your lives in this great escape group. You didn't send me here. It was God who made me a father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household, and ruler of the whole land of Egypt. I need to catch you up to speed. I skipped some stuff. We skipped some stuff. I think we have the uh, picture of, uh, of what this, yes. Um, if, you're, if, if you've been with us, you know that when we last left off, Joseph has just been put in charge of Egypt. He's had this incredible insight from God, knowing that there's going to be seven years of famine, seven years of bountiful, uh, or, or sorry, seven years of bountiful fat harvest, followed by seven years of famine. He's a sharp guy. He comes up with a great plan to, to help the whole world to survive this. He's going to take 20% of the harvest while, um, while the land is fat, and he's going to save it so that when everything is bad, he's going to be able to distribute it. Pharaoh likes the idea so much, he gives him a pardon from a life sentence in prison, sets him up as the second most powerful man in Egypt. In fact, in this text, Joseph says, I'm Pharaoh's father, which is a little, it's good that the Egyptians are out of the room when he says this, because if they heard that, they'd probably be like, not anymore, you're not. Um, but the idea being that Joseph is the one who's making sure that Pharaoh gets fed too, right? He's the father, even of Pharaoh. Now, what's happened is that he, he starts his plan. Everything's going well. Seven years. He has a couple of kids. You might remember that. He's married. He's, his family is dead to him. I mean, they should be because they, they tried to kill him, then they sent him into slavery. Well, what we missed is this incredible happenstance, orchestrated by God, of course. But, but his brothers um, and his father, who are still living in Israel and in, in Palestine, in that area, uh, they're hit by the famine. And they're starting to get hungry. And they hear that Egypt has this, just a load of grain and goods. And so Jacob says to, um, to most, all but one of Joseph's brothers, I want you to go down to Egypt and get some food for us. The one brother he leaves behind, he holds back is, is Joseph's, uh, blood brother. Uh, there's, if you'll remember, Joseph has uh, 12 brothers. Uh, they're brothers from different mothers, four mothers, um, two wives, two consorts. The only uh, bro- full brother that Joseph has is, is, Je- is Benjamin. Behind me, you can see he's hugging Benjamin because um, he, he does some tricky stuff with his brothers. He, he tells a few white lies to them, kind of like makes them scared that they're going to die. <laughs> he gets a little bit of revenge for all the terrible things they've done to him. Really what he's doing is testing them to see if they've changed or if they're still filled with hate and bitterness like he remembers. He finds out they're not. 
In fact, he orchestrates it so that his, his blood brother Benjamin comes with them and he sees Benjamin and uh, he's overcome with emotion uh, realizing that his brothers are no longer out to get um, you know, the, the, the sons of his mother. And he gathers them all for a feast, for the big reveal. They haven't recognized him because, you know, he shaved head. It's been 17 years-ish, uh, maybe a little longer since they've seen him. He's got the eyeshadow of, uh, of, of Egyptians wearing the headdress and all that. They have no idea who he is. And so the big reveal, he comes out. He's like, guys, first he sends out all the Egyptians. Guys, it's me. It's Joseph. I'm back. In the, if, you, if you look at closely at that painting... It's interesting. It's a classical painting of this scene. And, uh, and, and the, the artist kind of renders some of Joseph's brothers a little bit like angry at him. <laughs> They're a little bit like, Argh. we're not sure how they felt. Uh, we don't know if this was like, you know, the ha- a happy reunion for everybody. We do know that they felt guilty that they changed, um, in time and they regretted the things that they'd done. But, you know, family's messy. And even in, in a moment like this, there's, there's some messiness that goes on. And Joseph's aware of that. Let's look at the text um, again a little, a little more closely. Notice what Joseph says. He, he calls them out. He doesn't, he doesn't mince words here. He's like, don't be upset. Don't be angry with me or with yourselves that you sold me. Okay? You, sold, you, you did this. You sold me here, you jerks. Things worked out for me, but, but I, the only reason I'm here is because you put me in a pit and tried to sell me off. But then he goes, but wait, don't worry about it though, guys, because guess what? Joseph's been thinking about this for years, and he's kind of come to some uh, idea in his mind of what's really happening. He's like, it wasn't you guys, God sent me, right? Notice the change here. It's like, you sold me, and then, no, 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 actually, God sent me. God did this, God did it. And then notice that he actually contradicts himself within the space of a few sentences. First he says, you sold me, and then he says, you didn't send me here. It was God who made me. A father to Pharaoh. This is a little bit strange because, uh, you know, not that Joseph's, you know, he's, he's overcome with emotion, so let's not expect him to talk like a philosopher. But it is a little weird that he, he's like, you guys did this, and then immediately he's like, no, you didn't do it, it was God. It's like, like what, you know, it's hard to know exactly what's going on in his heart. And it's actually something that's pretty familiar to us. But one thing we want to say is, like, if, if Joseph's right at the second point that God was the one who did this, then God is responsible for the thing that happened to him. Remember this cute little, uh, everyone likes the Sunday school pictures, right? Is, is that, is like, is, is God responsible for that? When, like, Joseph's brothers were, were, were around him and suddenly God took over them, like they're robots. He's like puppets. He's like, now throw Joseph in the well. Good, now pull Joseph and put him in the slavery. Is that really what's going on here? Or is it something different? Well, uh, we've actually all been in situations like this. Um, the next uh, slide is the, um, the situation we've all found ourselves in at one point or another. That is an elephant. Now, this is not a rhetorical question. You may answer, uh, what is that elephant thinking? I'm sorry? Yeah, how did I get here, right? How did I get here? Uh, also, possibly, this is not my nest. <laughs> how did I get here? Um, every person uh, has had this experience at one point or another in your life, right? It's great to sometimes just just sort of look at your circumstances, good or bad, and be like, how did I get here? <laughs> because I know that if I rewind the clock, say, five years, say, ten years, 
15 years. If I go back 15 years, I can actually trace most of the choices that I made and the choices that people around me made and the circumstances I found myself in. I can sort of see those and I can articulate those and I can sort of see how the path kind of led to this place up in the trees in my net, my new nest. But if I were to go back and talk to Tom 15 years ago and be like, Tom, guess what? This is what's going to be happening. You're going to be like 250 pounds. Be like, (laughs) get out of here. And yet, if I trace the choices that I made, (laughs) it's really easy for me now to sort of see how I got here. And yet, I don't want to say that um, I'm here just because of what I've done, because I know that um, my plans and my ideas for for who I am today were not at all the plans for who I had to 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 become back in the, back then. And so there's this uh, weird thing where I can say I can say with full honesty I can say God put me here, God brought me here to this place with you. But at the same time, I can own all of the choices that I made. And all of the circumstances that were around me, and I can accept the freedom, free choices of those who also helped me get to where I am today. It's this weird kind of interplay where it's not, you know, we said a couple weeks ago, God may maybe quantum indeterminacy. It's a total contradiction, and yet it's true. We experience this in our lives. We know there's no way that God, that I would be where I am today, where we are today, this group, every person here, there's no way that we would all be here in the circumstances we are in if God had not brought us through some things. And yet, at the same time, we still own and are responsible for the choices that we made along the way. It's a very bizarre, like, stop trying to figure it out. You won't. Well, maybe you will. But if you do, you need to write a dissertation. I, uh, I know some people who will publish your book. Uh, you'll make a lot. I'm not just kidding. You won't make any money at all. But you might get famous amongst a, uh, a very select group of people. Back to the text. So... Joseph's kind of been thinking for years. He's sort of understood that somehow God's involved in this. He's been involved in this. His brothers have been involved in this. What's going on? Why has God done all this? Why is, has he had this crazy story? And he, he tells us, right? He tells his brothers. He's like, look, the reason God sent me before you was to preserve life. It's an interesting uh, phrase in, in Hebrew. It gets, it's hard to know um, how to translate it really well because usually this is a phrase that gets used when people are starving. Okay? This is a starving uh, uh, phrase. So if you're starving, right, and somehow you get sustenance to sustain you, that's God preserving your life. That's this word. It gets used this way throughout the Old Testament almost without um, any, any failure, almost entirely. And it's ironic because literally Joseph's brothers have been starving, and God sent Joseph to make sure that they would have sustenance to preserve their life, to get them through. So they would make it. And he emphasizes this a little bit later. He uses the same phrase. Uh, God sent me before you uh, to set up a remnant in the land and preserve your lives in this great escape group. That's a very literal translation. I'll talk a little more about that in a bit. But the idea behind um, like what God's up to and how God does it. This is a moment in scripture where we're seeing kind of God's blueprint for every time the world starts to fall apart. And I invite you, for those of you who've been with us for a while, to let, let's just think back for a second. 
We've been in Genesis. We're in Genesis 45. Genesis is only going to go a few more chapters. We're almost at the end of Genesis, and end of the first book of the Bible. Um, but we've met a lot of people. What were they like? What was their story? Well, one of the first people we met was Noah. He's up there on the screen, probably, maybe. Yes, Noah. Think about Noah. The whole world is about to be destroyed by a great flood. And, and we saw the reason, because God's heart was broken, because people were just doing horrible things. Um, and there was evil as far as the eye can see. And so God's looking at this, and he's like, man, I've got to start all over if I want my plan to be fulfilled for this people in this world. Maybe I could find, like, just one guy. Maybe his family. And I could use them to preserve life. Maybe I, I, I could use them as, like, this vehicle, and they would hold fast to me. They would know me. They would know my name. They would know my faith in me. And I, and I would, I would, pres- I would just, just, maybe, I don't even, what the heck, throw them in a boat. While, while the whole world is flooded, right? And then, and, and I'm gonna protect them, and through them I am going to preserve the life, not only of human beings, but of animals. I'm gonna preserve my plan, my hope for the world through this small little group. We met, um, Abraham. Uh, every time we've, we followed Abraham for a while, and uh, everywhere Abraham goes, uh, the world's a disaster. Uh, he goes many places. In fact, we skipped the part where God actually has to nuke a place because it's so bad and so filled with evil, um, violence, uh, rape, uh, sexual craziness. God, I mean, wherever Abraham goes, God's like, this is awful. And, and one, one of the things we didn't pull out is God's always promising Abraham. He's like, look, I see how bad this is, and I promise you I'm going to wipe these people out. They're all going to die. But boy, it sure would be nice. If I just had one guy, one small family, one group that would remember my name, remember what I'm like, and, and what I could do is I could just protect them and preserve them, and, and in so doing, I could make sure that they are, are protecting the plan I have to save the world. I can preserve them, and in preserving them, I can preserve everything that I desire for the world. We met Jacob. Uh, Jacob, this is Joseph's dad. Terrible guy. Uh, and, I mean, the, the pictures behind me, um, we're seeing the places where he's deceiving his, his family. His family gets so mad at him, they try to kill him. He's on the run. Here's the guy who's, God said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my plan through you, and yet everyone's after him. And so God says, look, what I'm gonna do, Jacob, even though you don't deserve it at all, I'm gonna preserve your life. I'm going to save you. And my idea behind that is that eventually you'll go on and you will do all the things that I ask you to do. You will become the man I want you to be. You will preserve my name. You will show my name to people. And through you, I'm going to make all the things that I dream and desire for the world happen. Over and over and over and over. In times of crisis, we've seen, and and if you just extend into the future, you see the same thing. When, God, when there's a crisis, God preserves a faithful remnant. This next thing in your note sheets. A faithful remnant. This is a, it's a weird thing in God's MO. 
In fact, Joseph himself is this faithful remnant. We'll see in a second. But not only that, but in the future, if you travel through the Old Testament, you're going to see time and time again, people fade. They fail. They run away. And yet God always preserves some small group of faithful Israelites who keep the faith, who stay with it. And through them, he provides a new future for the whole world. He does it over and over and over again. The whole world's about to fall. Catastrophe, failure. One small group. This culminates in one man, Jesus from Nazareth. He's one guy in the whole world who does things God's way. God elects him and says, I'm going to, through you, I'm going to finally fulfill my plans because I can't trust anybody else. I need a small, faithful remnant. And you're it, Jesus. And through that, Jesus obeys God completely, fully, perfectly. He pays for, uh, for our sins through his death, gives us eternal life. And then what happens? A small group of people see him for who he is and follow him. And that small group starts getting called the way, the church. And through this small group of faithful people, this faithful remnant, God again spreads his plan to save the world. Over and over and over in times of crisis, God does the same thing. It's the kind of God he is. He finds a small group of people, a small group of faithful people, and through them, he saves the world. And how? How does that work? Let's go back to the text really quick. He sets up a remnant. I promised you I'd tell you a little bit about that word remnant. It um, <laughs> it really sort of is literally like a body of survivors or like a surviving fraction, kind of. It's like a, there's like a slicing that goes on and just eliminates everybody else but this small group. And then at the end there, uh, in older translations, especially if you're following the Pew Bible, you'll see something like this great deliverance. Literally there, it's uh, a great escape. It's where, I mean, it's where you get the title of that. Steve McQueen, was he in the great, great escape? Got a lot of old people here, so they know. <laughs> when, when, when they need to reboot The Great Escape, right? Put Ryan Gosling in there. He's like the new. He's the new Steve McQueen. Ryan, Ryan Gosling. I mean, and, and and speaking of Ryan Gosling, Rams are playing today, and how much does Jared Goff look like Ryan Gosling? It's weird. It's creepy. I don't know why I said any of that. Hmm. There's this great escape group, and, 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 and think about, think about the logic here. Um, does anyone recognize, uh, the, this next, uh, person here? He's kind of famous. Take a shot. Or the, or the location. This is the modern day version of, this is where this actually happened. Something happened about 2,000 years, 2,500 years ago. Totally awesome. No one saw the 300? The 300, right? A silly film uh, with a ridiculous amount of abs, um, <laughs> celebrating. That's King Leonidas um, up there. King Leonidas was a, a Spartan general. Uh, what you see there is Thermopylae. That's the Greek for the hot gates. Uh, thermo, where we get thermometer, and pilus or pulas, pule, uh, gate. Um, Couple, yeah, several thousand years ago, Leonidas um, was a member of these loosely affiliated Greek uh, city-states, and the city-states uh, were basically they they had like sort of politics together, but they did their own thing. And at the same time, to the east and a little bit to the south was the Persian Empire, an expanding empire. Um, this is right around 400-ish BC. Um, 
The Persian Empire, you can see there was an expanding power. And uh, you'll notice uh, on that map that they, there's not just the Persian Empire in the orange, but also the vassal states that they had conquered and were controlling and used for supplies. The Persian Empire was going to, had, had designs on world domination. That was what you used to do when you had a, uh, an empire. Here in the United States, our empire is run through um, money, uh, mercantilism sort of, capitalism. They used to run their empires through spears. And Persia was, uh, was an expanding power. And they wanted to take over the world. And so the first thing they had to do after taking over what's modern day Turkey is they had to take over the south area there um, that you see at the bottom of the screen. That's where Greece and the city-states are because they needed to have naval control of uh, the rest of the world. I want to zoom out a little bit further to show you what we're talking about. This is a world map. Uh, Persia, um, what I have highlighted there is modern day Turkey. Persia would have included Turkey. Also, you can see that to the south, uh, the southeast there, that's what the rest of Persia would have been, places um, like uh, Iran, Iraq, um, modern-day Palestine, um, uh, Egypt, stuff like that. Uh, that's all part of the Persian Empire, and, and it's expanding, and you can see that there's like this land mass that's highlighted there that's right in the way of what we think of now today as Europe. Right? It's like right in the middle. It's like a chokehold in between Persia and Europe. So Persia wanted to expand to the northwest. In order to do that, they had to go right through the Greek city-states um, in order to go up there. And the Greek city-states were just a total disarray. Um, all the, there's Thebes, there's Corinth, there's Athens, there's Sparta. There's all these different city-states. They see this massive army is coming, and so they, they call out for, for, for volunteers to stop the Persians. And the Greek city-states and all of their might supplied 7,000 soldiers so that they could stop the, what scholars think is between 100 and 150,000 Persians who were on the march. The odds were not good. King Leonidas was the leader of 300 Spartans, and he took command of the Greek forces. He chose that spot that we saw earlier. Can we go back to uh, modern-day Thermopylae um, and Leonidas? Just so you can see it there. Um, if you if you look at the um, the right side of the screen, you can might maybe see like a, a, a like a road that's kind of curving. That's where we think right around 480 BC when this was taking place. That's about where um, the uh, the ocean would have been. All right, it's receded since, but the ocean would have been there. So you can see that this is a very narrow valley, and the Persian forces had to um, kind of come like towards us. Uh, and, and so the Greeks sort of st- stood in the way in, in these hot gates. 300 Spartans, uh, 700 Thebes, um, a bunch of different Athenians, um, some Helots, uh, just as a ragtag group. King Leonidas looked around at his 7,000 troops on the third day of battle, knowing that the Persians were about to overwhelm his forces. And he said, 6,000 of you are useless. You're weak. You're incompetent failures. And rather than having you waste time filling up the battlefield, I'm going to send you home. The 300 Spartans, the 700-ish Thebes, and various slaves, we will command the field, and we will die stopping this army. You may ask, why am I sending you home? You must warn all of Greece that if they do not get their act together, the Persians are going to take over the world, and everything that you hold dear is going to fade and die. The 6,000 leave. 
The remaining 1,000 that we remember is the 300, since the Spartans were at the front. Um, were flanked from behind and in front, and fought on the third day at the Battle of Thermopylae, and were wiped out, but held on long enough, and fought ferociously enough to pause the Persian advance. In the mind of King Leonidas, he wasn't becoming a hero. He wasn't trying to show how manly he was. He wasn't showing off his eight-pack. Instead, he was recognizing that everything that he held dear, and as much as he couldn't stand the other Greek city-states, the idea of the Greek city-states being free and doing what they wanted to do, that, that meant something to him. He wanted to pass that on. He didn't want that to be extinguished from the earth. It was worth so much that he was willing to pay the ultimate price to send all of his men to their death and let people that he honestly had contempt for leave and spread the word. Let's go back um, to the text and see that Joseph thinks of himself in almost exactly the same way. God sent me before you to set up a remnant. So Joseph thinks of himself and his family. If you remember, he has a couple of kids. His wife is the daughter of the sun god priest. Um, and, and God set up a little remnant in Egypt. Just a small group. And this small group is going to hold fast. And they're going to do what God wants them to do. They're going to honor God's name. They're going to stay with God. And, and because of that, they're going to be ready so that when God's people are on the run, the rest of Joseph's brothers and their family, when they're, when they're starving to death, all the people around Jacob and Joseph's brothers are dying left and right. And yet they escape down to Egypt where a small remnant God's set up to protect and, and save them. Why? Why? So that Joseph can get back to his brothers again, so he can have a tearful reunion with Benjamin? No. That's not what Joseph thinks is going on. He says, instead, God's using me to help this great escape group. The reason we need that group is because we desperately want to pass on the faith. We don't want it to die with us. God doesn't want it to die with us. He wants to make a way through. And just as, in some ways, Western civilization was saved um, by the 300 at the, the hot gates, in some ways, the, the story of God and his redemption for the world was saved right here with Joseph in Egypt. So the next thing in your note sheets is that um, the remnant is tasked with preserving the faith and passing it on after the crisis has passed. This is how God always deals with crises. He finds a small group. He says, I'm I'm asking you to stay faithful, to pass on what you've learned, to keep the torch alive, to keep uh, my mission, my word, my truth, who I am, to keep it through this crisis while all around you is disaster. And then when the crisis has moved on, you can, you'll have that, that good word, that good news, that, that, that truth about me, and you're going to be able to, to spread that again. I worry that um, God may be instituting the remnant plan again here in the United States. 
I believe he's instituted it in Europe. Um, if you go there, it's a godless place. Well, is that true? Scott was just in Europe. How, did you see a lot of people praying? He went to all the churches. Were they empty or what? What's the story? The Muslims are praying. Oh, that's true. You're not wrong, John. Uh, there is, there is that. But, but, but presumably they're, they're wrong about who God is. And, um, can't say that outside here. Get in trouble. Um, but presumably the, the, the Christian church is small and weak. And there's, a, there's little groups of people all around Europe who are holding on to the truth of who God is waiting for the crisis to pass. And maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe that's beginning to happen here. If we really are part of the remnant plan, what um, should we expect? Well, the first thing is that size matters not. Size matters not. Uh, judge me by my size, do you? You know, we, we live in a culture where it's like all about getting bigger, better, faster, stronger. There's even, even a song. Like every word is like bigger, better, faster, stronger, up, you know, more, more, more. Uh, if you want to know that you're successful, if you want to know that you're amazing, well, you get huge and you have incredible power and you flex that power and you show everyone what's up. The remnant plan is about not being uh, huge. It's about being small and mighty. It's like, it's, it's being like Yoda. You don't have to, he's small, but he packs a huge amount of power. And he has world altering power. And that's what the church is in the remnant plan. It's a small group of people whose prayers, whose, uh, whose, whose love is, is world alteringly powerful. And it, and it doesn't have to get huge. It can just, it can be small. It doesn't have to be like one billion. There's like a church in South Korea that has like a hundred thousand members. Dude, that's a lot of, that's a lot of people at church. That's not the remnant plan. The remnant plan is a group that stays faithful, stays hardcore, and yet does not lose its light and salt to the world around it. That's the challenge. It's easy to be small. Hard to be small and faithful. And what do we mean by faithful? Well, the next thing is, uh, in the remnant plan, the people that you're around you, that you're looking for, because Christians are supposed to be evangelizing, right? We're supposed to be moving out. Well, in a way, uh, in, in, in times of crisis, in times of, of total disaster and catastrophe, the people that you're ministering to are injured. They're wounded. The church becomes a, a group of combat medics. Think about, you know, and, and, and when, when the crisis is happening, if the culture is falling apart, there's going to be a ton of detritus. People who are wounded and beat up by how sick this place is becoming. Those are the people who are going to come to the church. We're, we're like, hey, you know how crazy it is out there? Here's what the world's really like. Here's what God's really like. Here's what human life is really like. Your wounds, we're going to come in, we're going to welcome you, we're going to help heal you. With the power of the gospel, you're riddled with sin. You are in desperate need of redemption. Let me show you how Jesus took care of that. Last but not least, under the remnant plan, uh, you have to understand that the people who are going to be with us, who are with us, a lot of us right here, right now, are people who have to unlearn what we have learned. 
The culture has given us a whole bunch of scripts about what life is like, what sex is like, what money is like, what human life is like, what there is no God is like. What I mean, that, that's all out there, and we've ingested it. We do it every time we turn on Netflix. We do it every time we click on Instagram. Every single time we're bombarded by these messages. The, the church is, is the unlearning place. It's the place where it's like all that bad data that has been ruining and corrupting your mind. We have to rip it out. We have to fix your neurons and reorganize them so that you can learn how things really actually are. So that when, instead of just imbibing and accepting this sick, gross world that's out there, you start to see that it is actually sick. It's not normal. It's abnormal. It's not right. And it needs to be changed. When, uh, and this is different than when you go, um, when you're like missionaries who go into unreached places. They are sharing uh, the gospel for the first time. They are sharing truth for the first time. It's a different environment than when you have a place that's been confronted with the truth and rejected it and bought something else. This is the remnant plan. This is not the dominion plan. Um, I have good news. There is no better remnant in this area than this place. I know that. Uh, for a number of reasons, but most recently it was brought to my attention by, um, we're gonna take on a new youth intern, Ryan. Ryan, would you raise your hand? Ryan is uh, gonna be working with our youth group. He grew up in our youth group. Um, and he was, he was like, dude, I, I just, there's something really special about the kids here. He's been working with the high schoolers. He's like, it's just, it's weird. They're, they have this completely different perspective on what life is supposed to be like. They're just not like their peers in, out, out there. It's almost as if they've been like, I don't know, just brought along in a completely different world. And he's like, and I want to see them experience the same things I experienced when I was their age here. I know that this place is a remnant because I see how different we really are. It's amazing how loving and generous the people of this place are in the face of radical hostility. It's amazing um, how much this place accepts and loves the most ridiculous human beings and accepts them as our own. We are the remnant that God is fashioning. And though the world crumble around us, we will faithfully preserve the light of the gospel and the way that God is. Every single part of us from the inside out is committed to his way. And because of that, I believe that long after all of us have passed on, Coast Bible Church will remain. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, um, we pray against uh, the remnant plan. Lord, if there is a way to preserve and redeem uh, this culture and this world, we ask, we ask for it, God. Give us revival. Give us courage to, 
to share your good news, to, to go out and, and be the face of, of change. But God, if it is your will to allow crisis and desperation in this place, in this culture, we pray, God, that we will be the faithful remnant. That we will, we will study, we'll be judicious to know your truth, to stay close to scripture, that we'll always be people of generous and free grace, that we'll be a family to those who've been wounded and damaged by the world around us. And that when the crisis passes and the culture is sick to death of itself, God, I pray it'll be Coast Bible Church that, they t- that it turns to, to be reminded of who you are, what you are like, and what you have for us until your son returns. In his name we pray, amen.